This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Rajesh Jain, CEO of Netcore. We are speaking with him about how technology is shaping and transforming the future of marketing. Rajesh, thanks for joining us today at Knowledge at Wharton. Pleasure, Mukul. So last year, McKinsey had published a very interesting report. Uh, and it said in the report that advances in technology, data, and analytics will soon allow marketers to create much more personal and human experiences across moments, channels, and buying stages. Uh, when you think about what's happening in the world of market, MarTech or, or technology-driven marketing, uh, how has the promise of personalization been realized? How far has it been realized? I think we are just at the early stages in what's happening around personalization. But I think we got to back up a little bit to understand what's really changing in the world of marketing and what are the drivers for change. Omnichannel personalization is the end game. Hmm. And that'll take us some time to get there. But the drivers, first, uh, I think, are the fact that everyone's got devices. So whether it's a computer, whether it's a mobile phone, uh, these devices are connected. So... There's a lot of data that these devices are are generating. Um, so every, every click that you do on a site, every action that you take on an app is being recorded somewhere. And this is really helping lay the foundation for a digital customer and digital companies. So the disruption that is coming in now in the world of marketing is being brought about by companies who are not like the traditional companies. They are basically building digital-first companies, so either mobile-first or uh, app-first companies which are being created. So that's the sort of backdrop to what's happening. So marketing is getting transformed because of the data, devices, and the digital-first companies that are getting created. Now, the second strand to this discussion is that what's happening is that also the world of... uh, uh, ad tech we are very familiar with, where you're, used, you're using Google, Facebook, etc. for customer acquisition. And my belief is that as we go along, budgets will shift from ad tech to martech. So ad tech is about acquisition. Martech is basically about customer engagement, customer retention, development, maximizing uh, customer lifetime value from, um, from the interactions that you do with the customer. So there's only so many customers you can acquire in the world. I mean, at the end, you have to also have to maximize value from uh, each of these uh, customers. So that's the first uh, starting point, that budgets will shift. Second is that in doing so, companies are going to recognize that not all customers are equal. Uh, the work being done by Peter Fader right. at Wharton around yeah. customer centricity yeah. and the best customers I think it's very critical in this, that all customers are not equal Mm. and that you will need to focus on a certain set of customers who are your best customers, Mm. who have the uh, largest lifetime value. Now, what I define as best customers are basically customers who uh, spend more, who stay longer, and also spread your message more. Mm -hmm. So they they become your best customers, greatest Mm. lifetime value. Mm. So you want to concentrate Mm. on them. Mm. And how do you do that? That is where MarTech comes in. And what do these customers want? Omni-channel personalization. Mm-hmm. The customer is interacting 
with the brand mm. across multiple channels. Yeah. So online and offline. It could be uh, on a website, through an app, through email, through SMS, uh, through app notifications. There's multiple methods of engaging and interacting with a brand. Mm-hmm. And also offline. I'm in a store right. and so on. And what do they want? They want to be treated differently. And that's where the entire data stream, those digital footprints which they are leaving, mm-hmm. can now be used by brands. They can You can put machine learning algorithms on top uh, to yeah. basically also decide what future action the customer is likely to take. So what the next best action yeah. uh, the customer should be prodded towards. Right. And that's the personalization yeah. world that is going is coming up. No, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, you know machine learning because there has been a lot of buzz about artificial intelligence and the related technologies. Now, do you see AI starting to make an impact on marketing and building customer engagement? Uh, where do you see the greatest promise and potential in redefining customer journeys? I think the uh, the the great potential in terms of uh, machine learning in MarTech will really be around next best action. So using all the historical data that's there, what is it that the customer is likely to do next or what is the what is the next best action which is most beneficial from a company standpoint from, from the customer? It could be just a marketing message. But then how do you send the message? What is the content to send out? What is the right time to send this message out? So in Netcore, for example, when we send out emails for our customers, we tend to do uh, machine learning to do send time uh, optimization. So uh, machine learning is basically figuring out when you open your mails and therefore the likelihood that uh, you will actually act on a mail becomes higher if the marketing message from the brand comes to you in that window when you're likely to see mails. Now this is different for every user. This can't be done automatically. Uh, This can't be done by humans basically. It becomes too much. So machines tend to learn. You may change your behavior. So again, it learns from what you're doing. Subject uh, line optimization. Mm. What is the right channel to use to interact with you? All of us have a preference. Mm. Some prefer emails. Some may just like app notifications. So these are the early days of machine learning. So what's happening is all of this data is now coming in. Brands are basically analyzing, doing analytics on this data. Like you said, the McKinsey report, which you mentioned earlier. And then the whole objective is how do I create a unique experience for each customer? And that in the customer journeys can only be done at scale if it's really automated. So it can either be rule-based, which becomes somewhat limiting as we go ahead, or machine learning based. So it just becomes better every day. What are some of the most interesting things you've seen happening uh, in the use of technology and data and analytics? And what is still a distant dream? I think the ability to communicate at scale Mm. with a very large customer base for a brand is something which was not there earlier. Mm. Brands knew very little about their customers. Mm. So now because of digital devices, there's a unique handle. It's an email ID or a mobile number that's typically available for brands. And that becomes the way by which they can actually start learning a lot more about the customer. This was not possible a few years ago. So we were not uh, leaving any uh, uh, footprints really out there. But as devices have become more common, 
the processing compute power, the computational complexity of many of these things, the costs for that have dropped dramatically. So now it becomes possible to do this at scale. I think these are still very early days because as companies are getting all this data, now you need to run analytics. So what's really the goal of of marketing? If you start with, uh, uh, in this context of what we are doing, what, what would a CMO love to do? I'd love to basically maximize my lifetime value of my customers. Right. Which means I need to identify from my current set, from my current cohort, who are my best customers? How can I get them to spend more? How can I engage with them more? Earlier, it was very difficult to do this. Every person was basically treated pretty much the same. Yeah. Next question then becomes, okay, if what are the characteristics of my best customers? Now, can I go out and acquire more such customers? Correct. So really, you want to, a marketer now has the ability to almost craft the perfect mm. company, mm. a perfect organization or a marketing uh, or a customer base. Correct who are going to be best customers, spend more, stay longer, and spread the message to others. Because everyone, every one of us now has got access to spreading good and bad messages about brands to a large number of people, whether it's at a restaurant, whether it's a movie, or whether it's a product that you bought. All of this is now becoming possible. So it's a very exciting world. Mm. I think we are still at the early stages of this world. How uh, Google basically, and Facebook over later on, have transformed the world of customer acquisition through ad tech, being able to pinpoint our needs and then get the right targeted ads uh, delivered to us through multiple channels. The same, I believe, is going to happen in the world of MarTech. But this time, it's the brand engaging with the customer, creating a direct relationship. And that's the opportunity for the future. That's how marketing sort of evolves into this omni-channel personalization future. One of the really interesting things that seems to be going on is the greater push to digitize physical spaces through AI-enabled uh, tools like facial recognition. Uh, at the same time, there's also been a backlash uh, against facial recognition on the grounds that these kinds of technologies violate privacy. Uh, how do you think this debate will play out? I think you have to follow the money in many of these ways the new technologies tend to evolve. Mm. Um, I think as customers benefit, you walk into a store today, okay? The store has no idea whether you're in the top 10 percentile or in the bottom 10 percentile of customers. Mm. Now, if you walk into a store and by doing face recognition, you can get a differentiated experience. You can get someone to come and help you if you're in the top percentile. You get a a, 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 a shopping assistant, maybe. You will love that experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You will not mind your face being recognized at places like this. Right. For uh, uh, airline boarding, I think, in, uh, I think someone was uh, telling me recently about China, where you just basically recognize your face and then tell you exactly where your boarding gate is, which direction you need to go into. So a lot of these technologies, I think, are going to be, they are going to be used irrespective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the question, therefore, becomes, what are the limits mm-hmm. on this? Mm-hmm. At a protest, mm-hmm. is it right to use face recognition to identify people? Mm-hmm. You know, because there are cameras now everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then take targeted action against some of these protesters. Right. 
I think society will have to address these questions. They will need to uh, have limits put on these. But I think in the world of marketing, I think if as long as customers feel that they are benefiting from personalized experiences through the use of new technologies like facial recognition, I think they are inevitable. You you referred some time ago to our Warden colleague Pete Fader and his work on customer centricity uh, and the need for companies to focus on their best or their most profitable customers. Uh, to what extent do you see marketing companies doing this today? And even more importantly, could they be doing anything that they are not doing today to attract their best customers, attract and retain their best customers? So I think a lot of the focus today uh, in companies tends to still be largely on customer acquisition yeah. because that's those are the metrics probably investors are asking for. So how many new customers did you acquire? It's an arms race yes. for new customer acquisition. There is not that much attention being given, I think, to what is the cost of new customer acquisition. Yeah. And until t- the time that the startups, uh, you quote unicorns and others, have got easy access to money, and it's a race for just acquiring new customers. We'll figure out what to do with them later. Acquisition will tend to remain the focus without regard of uh, what is the spend, etc., uh, that they're likely to do. I think this is where things need to change. Yeah. What needs to happen is that uh, investors and even company management, the CFOs in companies, need to start asking on what is the worth of each of these customers? What is the value? What is the lifetime value Mm. of each of these customers? Why are we acquiring customers Mm. that are likely to um, cause us to lose money? Mm. For example, uh, uh, to take uh, a story, uh, there was a book by Sunil Gupta last year from Harvard on driving digital strategy. And one of the points he makes in there is the 20-200 rule. 20% of your customers account for 200% of your profits. Mm which means there are probably a lot of customers who are actually causing you to lose money. Now, today that may not matter, but at some point of time, I think as a shift starts happening, that customers are not equal, Mm -hmm. that companies now need to probably start analyzing their segments Mm -hmm. and figuring out which customers should I really go after, which are the types of customers to acquire. Right now, it's just numbers. So until that number mindset is there, I don't think you will see a shift. Yeah. My belief is it's going to start happening. As capital becomes a little more discerning in where it goes, mm-hmm. I think you will find companies starting to analyze their own internal data, or figure out the type of customers that they need to attract and engage with. And that's where this whole calculation of customer lifetime value starts to come in, which should really have been the first thing companies should be looking at anyways. Exactly. Now let, let's turn now to Netcore. Uh, what, what are you and your colleagues uh, doing in MarTech and what lessons have you learned through your experiences that could benefit uh, marketing executives in other companies? Uh, so Netcore is uh, Asia's largest email marketing and marketing automation platform. Uh, we have hundreds of customers in India and uh, Southeast Asia on most of the large, largest companies, unicorns in BFSI, in e-commerce, in travel, um, OTT platforms, uh, the uh, app-based uh, video streaming platforms, they all use us for, uh, we've got multiple products, so email is one. We compete with uh, SendGrid, uh, which is a US-based company bought by Twilio. 
about a year and a half ago. So the way we've built our stack is we start with multiple channels. So email, SMS, app notifications, browser notifications. So a company brand can use our platform to send out messages across multiple channels. Second is that uh, we have a product called Smart Tech, which lets us, which lets brands automate these customer journeys. Mm. So you can send out, you can create workflows for your brand interaction, for your customer interaction. And then based on the customer actions, the analytics can be used to then feed back into the automation platform. Mm. So the whole idea is really about intelligent communication and engagement that needs to get done. And this is where analytics and machine learning comes into play. The third aspect of what we do is, uh, so there's email, there's the MarTech, the marketing automation piece, and the third part is personalization. We acquired a company, Box.ai, late last year, mm. which does incredibly powerful personalized experiences mm. for customers and can give a 10% lift on revenue mm. in multiple categories, mm. like e-commerce, in travel, in OTT, to brands within a month. So it's just analyzing the customer data, showing you a different set of um, products and me a different set of products because we are different. Mm. And just this action can help lift uh, revenue mm. for brands. So our dream is really to help companies manufacture best customers. So we have a toolbox mm. which lets companies take their customer relationships and how can you now use the Peppy Post, Smart Tech, and personalization from Box platforms for doing intelligent automation, intelligent personalization, and intelligent communications. Netcore is headquartered in Mumbai, but in recent years you've been expanding in other parts of the world, including the US. Uh, could you tell us about your global journey? And what are you, where in the world are you doing your most innovative and instructive experiments? So we started off, of course, as an Indian company. We are 20 plus years old. And uh, India, we've had a very dominant position in mul for multiple of these products over time. A few years ago, uh, we decided that we need to go beyond India. So many times what happens is India is still a reasonably large market. A lot of funding coming into India also now for in the B2C space especially. Uh, that we don't tend to think of the world outside. So I didn't want to make that mistake. Um, so we first looked at Southeast Asia, and we've had very good success there. Countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam are growing very rapidly. They have a large, very much similar to India. They have a large uh, population. Some of them have large populations. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, people, uh, consumers interacting on mobile phones, app, uh, and mobile devices first. So very similar characteristics to India. And... Uh, that's been a very, very, very good journey for us. Yeah. And over the last year, we've just commenced operations in the US. Yeah. The idea is to take all of our products, yeah. starting with the email yeah. uh, API product and the email campaign management solutions, personalization and over time automation also yeah. into the US market. Yeah. I think our, our proposition to companies here is that uh, we have basically a full stack solution. Yeah. So we are probably one of the few companies globally which can do 
communications, which can do automation, which can do personalization mm. in a single stack. So they don't need mm. to interact with multiple vendors. There's mm. best-in-class products, mm. which are all combined together mm. into a single platform. Mm. Uh, we have outstanding service, uh, which we've used in India, what we, have, uh, what we call customer success. Mm. Uh, in many cases, uh, we, we also take up KPIs with the CMO and uh, 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 with the CMOs and their teams to ensure that eventually outcomes are delivered. So it's not just the use of technology. Yeah. There are deliverable, clear KPIs and improvements that we can actually deliver for the brand as we go forward. And I think we have a strong proposition um, that we can take as we go along uh, to US customers. We've got tremendous experience from uh, India and Southeast Asia that we want to be able to leverage and bring best practices that we have seen which have worked very well mm. for the new generation of customers mm. you know, who are digital first, mm. who are app first, mm. and which are now coming, which are also uh, there in the US. Right. Mobile is spreading very rapidly. Apps are being used as a means of engagement. A lot of those learnings can also be applied into the US market. Right. The, uh, what does your roadmap look like for the next three to five years? So the way we've, we've built out Netcore so I'll answer the question in two parts. Um, from a technology standpoint, uh, the way we've built out Netcore is essentially having engineering, of course, in India. So very strong engineering internal capabilities to build out the whole B2C MarTech stack. So uh, and that part continues. Uh, in the next three to four, five years, we see a lot of uh, uh, machine learning coming in to make the job of the marketer much simpler. So for example, being able to automatically identify best customers, being able to suggest what should the communications go uh, to, to these customers. Today, so many of these things are not being done by marketers. The, com the platforms are, are, of course, complex to use, um, which are there today. But over time, ML, machine learning, will help make many of these tasks much easier. So improve uh, the quality of communication and simplify the life of the marketing team. So that's the, basically the idea on the engineering side, that there is a, that how do we transform marketing? What I said earlier, the whole idea of manufacturing best customers. So you've got a whole prospects and customers coming in. Now through uh, engagement, through the right communication, send to them at the right time, on the right channel, at the right time, how can you ensure that you build a very powerful relationship with the customer and that an increasingly greater number of your customers become, quote, best customers? So that's one track that is there. The second track really is around how we've architected the company. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a word I like to use called Proficon. <laughs> I was so about you, to ask you about that. Yeah, so it's, uh, you have unicorns, a lot of the unicorns, as we have seen in the last year also in the U.S. now, I've been burning up a lot of cash. Yeah. Uh, so I said, okay, we need something new to denote a new way to build companies, the way we have done Netcore over the last 20 years. So Proficon is basically, has four characteristics. The Proficon, it's profitable. It is private. It has, uh, um, uh, it basically um, is, is bootstrapped. Okay, so there's no external capital. Mm -hmm which ensures that for it, the focus is its employees and customers and not right. investors. investors. And there is a baseline valuation. 
So it's not a very, it's not taking every tiny company and putting it in a category. And I put the valuation threshold at let's say $100 million. Mm. In many times in unicorns, what you see is there's a billion dollar valuation, right. but the founding team is probably left with less than 10% right. out there. So uh, if it's 100 million, and if the founding team and the employees own 100%, it's almost the same thing. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think the three characteristics which I've used uh, in to, to build out Netcore, I think, uh, as, a, as a quote, proficon, uh, are the same things which I think the story needs to be shared with many others. In Netcore, the first, we've always looked at profitable growth. Right. So it's both profits and growth. One without the other doesn't work. No. The second is a long-term mindset. It's what Simon Sinek in his yeah. new book calls the infinite mindset. Right. So while you have to worry about what's you're going to do in the quarter and the next six months here, but what business is not, there's no finish line in business. Yeah. So there's an infinite game that you are playing. Right. So how do you think of the longer term? The question you asked, next three to five years. Yeah. But if my belief is to flip the company or sell the company, I'm not thinking long term. Yeah. I'm not thinking how will the world of marketing be in the future? What is tomorrow's marketer look like? What are their expectations? And the third is extreme uh, employee centricity. Uh, in Netcore, we instituted ESOP uh, employee stock options almost uh, 10 to 12 years ago. 25% of Netcore is owned by employees. And uh, with the profits that we had accumulated through the years, we did a stock buyback uh, recently. And uh, um, the earliest employees, some are, of course, no longer with us, they got a 250 times return on their investments wow. or on their wow. uh, stock. Wow. So it gives us great joy that you know, we can make this happen. Uh, it helps in, you to create wealth. It's, it's mm. a wealth creation at scale. And for the people who have worked uh, with us uh, in our journey. And over time, of course, I would like to take... Uh, Netcore and listed in the public markets. Mm. Um, but for the next uh, few years, I think keep the profitability baseline, reinvest surplus earnings back into the company. I think it's a great time to grow the, uh, to make the right bets um, for the next three to five years. Uh, but keep the foundation. I think this is very, very critical of long-term, uh, of long-term thinking, profitable growth and employee centricity. Right. And these are three clear foundations and, uh, of course, create a movement around uh, profitable companies, Proficons. That's a great concept. I really love the idea a lot. Uh, one question I have is, can India produce multi-billion dollar global companies as, say, China has, uh, using, you know, this, this uh, the, the model of the Proficon that you're talking about? Yeah, Proficons are sort of, uh, like unicorns, are rare sightings at this point <laughs> of time. Um, but uh, I think... There is a great opportunity for Indian companies to uh, to become large, multi-billion-dollar global organizations. Right. The first uh, generation that we saw in IT services, mm. so companies like Infosys, Tata Consultancy, Wipro, HCL, and many others, I think we are seeing a similar trend now in the world of SaaS, software as a service. So cloud-based companies being coming out of India and uh, targeting customers in the U.S. Mm. So Zoho, mm. Freshworks, mm. Chargebee, um, uh, Cloudcherry, Dhruva are four or five few initial examples. What these companies are very successful at is basically using 
new age marketing techniques in B2B world of using lead generation from India through SDRs, sales development representatives, of using inbound marketing, using account-based marketing, and with a small front-end account execs in the US, product engineering in India, and to take on some of the market leaders uh, who are there in the US in different categories uh, with very aggressive uh, price-value combination. So I think SaaS uh, gives Indian B2B companies a great opportunity and I think that's where we are going to start seeing probably the next generation of uh, large uh, B2B, large global uh, uh, Indian companies. Uh, just wanted to ask, end with a few, couple of questions about India. Yes. The many international publications in recent months have focused on the troubles of the Indian economy. Uh, my question is, though, is different. Uh, how, what do you think India can do to counter the slowdown? I think the slowdown that has emerged in the last uh, year, that has become more visible in the last year, has uh, been effectively, I would say, part of... Uh, there was a book which came out recently which said India's lost decade from 2004 to 14. Mm. And uh, I think uh, because of a few things which were not done after 2014... I think they're sort of continuing. Few things done and not done. I think it's now pretty clear when you look back, uh, not having acted fast enough on the bank NPA crisis, mm-hmm. which was become which had become visible from the 2012-13 uh, time frame itself. Uh, demonetization, uh, the GST, which sort of messed up uh, um, uh, tax rates and. Uh, 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 from the formal informal sector issues which came out after that the nbfc issues which came up uh, post the ilfs uh, blow up a lot of these things have come together and they have started impacting uh, consumer spending in india so the four pillars which are there typically of growth all are now under threat mm-hmm. and there's now a lot of published data around it there is no uh, doubt that uh, india is in the midst of a slap sharp uh, slow down. Now what can be done? I think the best idea and give it's in, which I think is important because the government has no money to spend. There's no real money for a stimulus. Of course it can be printed or created and but that's going to have serious uh, ramifications uh, in the short and medium terms and of yeah. course the long term. Uh, about a year ago, year and a half ago I put together um, an idea uh, called Dhan Vapasi, basically wealth return. And I think that is perhaps the most powerful idea mm-hmm. to counter what we are seeing in India. Yeah. So the idea had two parts. The first part was public asset monetization. Mm-hmm. It will essentially amaze us to know that the Indian government controls assets of $20 trillion. Mm-hmm. This is locked up today in minerals, mm-hmm. it's locked up in land, and it's locked up in the public sector undertakings. Mm-hmm. And when I say land, there are uh, a lot of land parcels across the country in large cities yeah. which are lying disused, unused, in many cases abused. Public sector undertakings where the government really has no business being yeah. in uh, still a very large public sector and growing public sector in India. So our idea was that you can actually start monetizing all of these assets. Yeah. This brings out a lot of the idle um, 
land or uh, idle assets into circulation. Mm. And as we start generating money from these assets, the idea should be to return this back to the people. So this is actually the wealth of the people. Mm -hmm. You know, when you talk to people, they say, "Oh, government uh, owns all of these things." Government doesn't own. Government controls. It's the people who are the owner. And to counter the slowdown that is there on the demand side, our proposal was that every Indian family can be given back hundred thousand rupees, so fifteen one lakh rupees, basically close to fourteen hundred dollars every year. Now this effectively doubles the median income of a family in India. India is still a poor country. Total uh, per capita uh, uh, GDP is just over $2,000 now. And it it leads to essentially giving people, it releases the credit constraint for I would say 60-70% of Indian families. Puts money in their hands to decide what they want to be able to do. And as they start spending, it starts the virtual cycle of consumption, of manufacturing, of job creation. All of these are huge challenges right now in India. And our solution is not going to come from uh, other countries. So this is the the ability to do dhanvapasi with the public asset monetization and the return of of this wealth generated back to the people. I think it's a very powerful idea. It is not universal basic income. Mm. This is wealth return. Universal basic income tends to be funded primarily through taxation. Right. Okay, or uh, you print money or whatever it is. This is wealth locked up. Mm. We're just releasing the wealth and giving it back to its rightful owners. Right. I think if the government can do this, I think it will put India Indians on an irreversible path to prosperity. Do it for 10, 20, 30 years. That's the kind of wealth which is there uh, locked up today in India. Right. And I think that's how you replicate the Chinese success. You pull out a few hundred million people from poverty mm. in the next uh, 10 years. Well, assuming that you know we, this is this is done and it puts Indian and it allows India to put her citizens on the path to prosperity, as you said, uh, who will take the lead in making this happen? So I think there are two parts. I think one is that the people who are already in power, so the current government, um, is a natural first decision maker. So. Uh, the current government, the bureaucrats who are there need to think about this idea seriously and make it happen. Um, and we had done all the groundwork. We had actually created a bill which we had sent out to all of the MPs uh, in India, members of parliament, uh, saying that, look, we've done the groundwork for you. All you need to do is to pass this bill in parliament. So that's one side. So it's people in power. That's the fastest way to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, Make the changes and you get it done. The second part or the other is if there's a bottom-up demand from people, that look, the, what's happening right now, the handouts, the subsidies, and the welfare schemes are not really doing the job. They are not creating enough wealth. They are not creating enough jobs. They are not creating enough opportunities. They are stifling people's futures. Right. But that's a harder problem. You've got to change minds there. You've got to get them to understand what the real problem is. So I think the fastest way is people in power realize that, look, this is the way to put India on a fast track to prosperity. Otherwise, the long route is change minds create the bottom-up demand in time for the next election. I'd like to ask, end with one last question, maybe returning to the topic with which we began, which is the future of marketing. If you had a platform to address chief marketing officers and CEOs, what would you tell them about which areas they should pay the most attention to? 
in the next few years. Best customers. Engage, identify, and engage with your best customers. I think that is the differentiated proposition that a company can create. That is the way to create a valuation for them for their own businesses and incredible value for customers who really want omni-channel personalization. But you can't deliver that to every customer of yours. Focus on your best customers. Give them omni-channel personalization. Rajesh, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Work. So always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.